Time for us to get into the future of, and this week we're looking at the future of AI and deep fake technology. This is after the story; it's still an ongoing story of uh, pornographic uh, deep fake images of Taylor Swift spreading through uh, the social media platform formerly known as Twitter. Um, and now there's a conversation about, well, maybe we need to talk about uh, the power and the risks associated with this incredible technology of deep fakes. And should we be concerned? Join on the line by futurist um, and economist, as well as business trends analyst, partner at Flux Trends, Bronwyn Williams. Bronwyn, a very good morning to you. Welcome to Weekend Breakfast. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for your time. So quite an concerning uh, developments this week. And I think uh, most people who use the internet have this fear that perhaps you will wake up one day and there are images or videos uh, that look like you and sound like you and maybe even move like you, but they aren't you because of where technology is now. And the latest victim, uh, certainly the latest high profile victim is Taylor Swift. Um, and so this raises very serious concerns about um, certainly safety. We even saw X uh, making it so it was very difficult, almost impossible to search her name because other people were looking to see the images. What do you make of this development? Well, I think it's a, quite an indictment on our society, not just the fact that women are being used in explicit ways in order to entertain various parts of the population, but I also think it's interesting that it's only really come to popular consciousness now that this has happened to a celebrity. Our values do tend to be sort of attached to people who we seem to value more as society compared to everyday women. who have been experiencing this sort of deep fake porn violations for some time now. This is by no means the first time this has happened, by no means new. In fact, uh, deep fake porn as a threat has been something that has been discussed among technologists and around futurists for years and years and yet it only seems when you kind of have a celebrity in the news that suddenly it becomes an issue or a problem and these are things that we could have put guardrails in place for in the past but we haven't although there does seem to be a shift now in terms of the socialization of social media and a lot of the digital uh, visual enhancement tools that we've all become used to using platforms like TikTok or Instagram for some time now. You can even see things like filters actually being forms of deep fakes that sort of turn your actual identity into a different version thereof. Mm-hmm. And of course, at the same time, of course, people taking your identity and then putting it into context that don't necessarily fit with you. But even so, again, filters that allow you to sort of pretend to be a celebrity. These are, these are years old technologies now. Uh, it's just interesting, of course, that that sort of conversation moves around the sort of <laughs> around around figures of power and privilege, right? Yeah. So I always find that quite fascinating. And so, an interesting question for me is: so we're seeing, I guess, the dangers of this particular technology. Um, you know, one article was saying we're now seeing how deepfake uh, technology and AI can be used to harass, humiliate, degrade, threaten, extort. We're even seeing the ways in which it can drive um, social unrest. So if you create a a deepfake of uh, President Joe Biden saying a particularly inflammatory or insightful thing, that may incite violence, right? But was there ever a time that these technologies were good? Can they, do they have good uses? Um, because I'm wondering then if they have these, I guess, these big risks, even to the point of impacting, you know, social cohesion, social unrest, why do we have them? What is, is there a good and useful productive use for them? 
Well, that depends on the sort of industry that you work in. If you work in the advertising industry or in the film industry, this allows you to create content at a far lower cost. I mean, the cost mm-hmm. of producing movies or creating digital art has been so exorbitant that it really made those fields very elitist. Unless you had access to very big investors with very deep pockets, you weren't able to produce content, right? I mean, you know how much it costs to fund movies, that sort of thing. These tools can democratize those sorts of industries. They can make them much more efficient. They can mean that creators who don't have access to those backings can make projects that can compete with the likes of Hollywood. And of course, it's no coincidence that the sort of first strikes and industrial action that we see against technology are not actually for social reasons like we're discussing today. They're actually around economic reasons. Industry incumbents who feel threatened with their competitive moats or their anti-competitive moats are being disrupted by these technologies. So I would say that is a social good when we're tearing down competitive moats and making technologies accessible to more people to play with, to create with. Uh, I think that when it comes back to the dangers of these things, they're very obvious, very obvious. And obviously having your identity exploited is not nice for people, that deep fakes can influence perhaps elections. But I think that there's ways to sort of cut through that. And I think that one of the misconceptions that we have as a society around digital content is that for the last sort of 30 years, we've habituated ourselves to start trusting technology, which is something that we didn't naturally trust. I mean, talk to your grandparents or your parents about what they thought about computers. They were naturally distrustful of anything digital. And that is turning out to actually be a good instinct for humanity. That we've made the mistake of seeing digital evidence, whether that be videos or whether that be footage or whatever, or sound clips, whatever that might be, as being somehow more true than individual interpersonal conversations one-on-one with people. The so-called trustless economy has been lauded as being aspirational and now we're starting to see the flaws of that. That actually our natural instinct to assume anything digital is false until proven innocent. Kind of the opposite of the way that we assume human beings to be innocent until proven guilty. That instinct actually is playing out to be something we should lean into rather than lean against. And I think that that's the opportunity for parents, for politicians, for leaders just by encouraging people to criticize anything digital as being entertainment first and not truth and fact first. Mm-hmm. We've got to question everything that we see online because it can be and it is being manipulated. And when we sort of switch our mindset in that regard, we can start to see the opportunities and to play with them for what they are. Forms of entertainment, forms of disseminating information that far from perfect you know, creations. And I was reading uh, a bit of research here, um, a, a survey that was done by a company called No Before. Um, they looked at about 800 employees in Mauritius, Egypt, Botswana, South Africa, Kenya. Uh, 74% of them said that they believed a communication via email or direct message or photo or video was true when it was, in fact, a deep fake. And so I think that's one of the challenges Like you know, you say one of the big things is that we have increasingly or we have immense trust in technology. And that's why, for instance, someone we can encourage people to trust. Yes. Yeah, so, so, you know, we've, we've said, well, you know, you don't have to go into a branch anymore. You can do your banking over your phone. Uh, that's made us very uh, vulnerable to phishing scams, etc. Um, and now we're being told, well, you know, email isn't the safest thing. Text isn't the safest thing. SMSs aren't the safest thing. Even images and videos that you see. But do we have the knowledge? Because it is a skill to try figure out if something is real or not, if it is altered or not. But do most people have that skill? Like if you were to be presented with a deep fake, if you presented an average person with a, an altered image or video, would they actually know 
where to start looking or how to begin to tell if it's fake. So I guess that literacy for the world that we live in now, do we have it? We absolutely do not. And here's the thing, the deep fakes that we see today are as bad as they're ever going to be. They're only going to get better and more convincing. And that's why the heuristic we have to get over And at the moment, when we see a video footage, we at first assume it's true and then try to criticize to see whether it could be fake or not. We have to change that heuristic, and particularly among small children, to say anything digital is questionable first, not true first. But it's our job as human beings to use our judgment, something that we've been discouraged from doing, actually. We've said, like, oh, no, your judgment is flawed. Rather revert to the computer. Rather revert to digital evidence that's better than your judgment. And that's a new thing. That's certainly not a natural way of interacting with the world and with the media that we consume. But it's something that we've kind of taught our children, that computers are smarter than people, that AI is cleverer than you are, that, you know, if it's written in the, if the machines calculate that its answer is better than your answer. And to some degree, that worked out in the last phase of the internet, right? Computers can produce or, or process mathematical equations much faster than we can. They can do tasks that we can't do with our human brains. But when it comes to truth and judgment, it doesn't work that same way. Mm-hmm. In fact, we need to break that heuristic. We need to start with all questioning everything digital as being assumed untrue until we're able to use our personal judgment. And we need to sort of reinstate those very human skills, that becomes hugely encouraging for people that are concerned about a very technological future. But there is clearly room for human judgment going forward. That's going to become a very valuable skill, not just in the marketplace, but also in your personal lives. Because that's the other thing. And there's other technologies that say they can pick up whether something is deep fake or not. You can start putting watermarks on. Mm-hmm. So for any sort of technology that can break a deep fake, there's other technologies that can make it. And we're going to get ourselves into a real loop there if we start to, if we continue believing that digital sources are better than our own than the evidence of our own senses, if that makes sense. You also mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation that one of the big challenges is while these technologies are not new, um, is that we also just haven't done the necessary work of putting guardrails in place. So these technologies mm-hmm. have been made, they've been developed, they're out in the wild, they're being used. But how do we, um, I guess, then make sure or mitigate the negative consequences of these um, uh, of these technologies? And I thought it was quite interesting. Once those images of Taylor Swift um, started spreading quite rapidly on X or Twitter, very soon um, you couldn't search for her because obviously people were wanting to search mm. for them, to see them, etc. It stopped people being able to search for her. Um, and in fact, one of the uh, executives, the head of business operations at X, said it was a temporary measure to prioritize her safety. Other people very quickly pointed out that that was an, a perfect example of if social media platforms like X or Twitter wanted to better uh, police or make its platform safer, they could. Um, because there have been criticisms of social media platforms that they, you know, prioritize insightful, inflammatory, violent content because that drives views and clicks and engagement um, and won't make the platform safer. Whereas here, um, we saw them step in and act quite quickly, actually. At some point, even if you try to search Taylor Swift's name, it would just tell you that, it's, you know, it, it, it's, it literally can't load. And so you see here a company be able to do something about an issue relating to safety that has been raised for many, many years. 
Yeah, you could say that. But at the same time, if you are a public figure like Taylor Swift, to not be able to be searched on those platforms could also have a material in- impact on your career, right? On the sales that you're making for your music and those sorts of things. So we've also got to kind of be careful about the sort of measures that are put in place. Of course, there are things that we can do, but are there things that actually protect the individual who has been targeted or are they just sort of creating a different problem for the victim, right? I mean, like these are things you have to talk about. So there's yeah. two things that we kind of see legislation coming up to start putting the guardrails in place. The one is that there's kind of a globally coordinated initiative at the moment to put um, age restrictions onto social media platforms because the conversations around deep fakes and AI are very related to conversations around social media because that's where these deep fakes are supposedly disseminated and have impact on the social political consequence. So there's quite big news there that is going to have again knock-on effects that also affect the victims as much as sort of crack down on the perpetrators in that it removes the, the sort of guardrails of anonymity from these platforms which is fine if you live in a d- democratic society where you have things of like freedom of speech but for, say, activists living in more oppressive regimes, uh, the, the, losing the ability to transact or communicate anonymously online could actually put your life in danger from your perhaps not so benevolent rulers and states. But nonetheless, it looks like um, it looks like age restrictions on social media are something that's going to be implemented sooner rather than later. And the other thing is looking at legislation that gives you copyright over your own identity. Because the moment copyright is something that is usually reserved for creators of companies, the idea that you actually own your own identity and that if somebody copies it or uses a likeness that is convincing you to sell product or to create porn or to do any of those things, mm. that there should be sort of legal pen- penalties in place. So we're also seeing that sort of legislation coming on board, which are, which are probably going to have bigger impacts than just social media platforms retrospectively, reactively, like blocking search terms or whatever on a particular case. Again, I said those sort of incidences of social media platforms blocking the likes of Taylor Swift are only, only services that are offered towards celebrities. And they cannot be done at scale for every individual who's going to be affected by these things. People like you and me, we don't have such profiles that will allow the likes of X and Facebook to jump when we're being hot. Hmm. Let's go to Leanne in Pretoria that has a question. Leanne, thank you for holding. Good morning. Good morning. I think this is such an interesting topic the medical profession and we've actually just have written for right now and what happened was we had a patient and we did treatment based on images we got from x-rays from cvcts from expert opinions but it was against our gut feeling of what we should have done for this patient and we were mm. a little bit torn when we went to theater and we said do we trust the technology do we trust our gut and obviously we went with the latest scans and the latest images and it was not correct and the treatment we gave the patient was actually inferior to what should have been given if we'd gone with our training and our feeling and our clinical um, our clinical perspectives of it mm. and it's now turned into a bit of an ethical issue because what should you do in a situation like that where you've got two conflicting kind of um, issues to deal with do you trust technology do you trust your gut and if the one is wrong, you know, where, where does the blame lie? With the, with the person who gave us the diagnostic image or with us because we followed it and we didn't trust our clinical gut? So I'm loving this topic altogether. It's, you know, we're over-relying on technology and believing everything technology tells us and no longer using our own instincts and brains and intuition. Bronwyn, your thoughts on that interesting case? 
Yes, it is something we've been following. I'm really interested to hear that there is a case study now locally too because there have been studies that have shown that when doctors or medical students are presented with evidence, so-called evidence, inverted commas, from AI technologies that counteract their own judgment, those doctors will change their initial judgment to match that of the artificial intelligence. And sometimes that can be perhaps good if the machines are able to see something that humans can't. But as a caller was saying there, sometimes because anything digital has already been flattened, the machines can only look for things that they've been trained to look for. And quite a lot of human judgment, particularly in fields like medicine, is not is that judgment is informed by sort of things that can be coded, the textbooks that doctors have learned. But there's also a lot of information that hasn't been explicitly coded into text that nonetheless the human brain picks up on those cues through experience, right? So it's like, try, try, have you ever tried to explain to someone how to drive a car that's never driven a car? You can like look at the manual and you can go through all the processes, but there's a whole lot of things that you wouldn't be able to articulate, but that nonetheless your subconscious helps you to do judgment mm-hmm. in terms of ju- judging speed and distance and all of that. So that's what we've got to remember. Sort of anything on that sort of diagnostic side, whether you're talking about using this for predictive p- policing, for law, for medicine, all of these things that when professionals then doubt their own judgment, their own nuanced, analog human judgment that contains a lot of subtext that we can't explicitly encode because you haven't thought about it in that way, we can make mistakes. And sometimes those mistakes can have grave con- consequences for people's lives or le- livelihoods or life sentences. Again, because this applies to things like law and policing as well as to things like medicine. Yeah, And to, of course, investing too. <laughs> and so I guess when we think about what then our future with these powerful technologies look like, someone might say, well, you know, let's stop using them. You know, kind of let's not use them anymore. Put, you know, put it back in the box and I think it may be too late to do that the technology is out there it is now being used and so what then do we you know what does the future look like to say there are really good useful parts of these kinds of technologies but also uh, used without any I guess guardrails with any without any guidance without any framework uh, we might find ourselves in a world of trouble, especially, for instance, as we go, you know, this year there are elections. I think it's 4 billion people around the world are going to the polls, including South Africa, the U.S. Deep fakes, I imagine, are going to be a very big part of uh, what we see coming out of the elections this year. We absolutely can't put these things back into a box. There's always going to be actors that will use them without permission, even if they are banned in the, in the eyes of the law. These are not things that we can, technologies that we can stop outright. What we instead need to do is to educate our civics, so our populations, well, particularly our children, around the limitations of technologies without discounting their benefits. There are very real benefits in terms of efficiencies, in terms of, as I said earlier, democratization of technologies used to be very, very expensive and limited to really elite strata of society. But instead, we have to remind ourselves that they are subservient to us, our digital tools, that they are not our masters. And that's something that is, that is hard for us to get our heads around when the machines seem to be so much smarter than us, able to do things that we can't do with our hands. That doesn't mean that they're actually thinking along lines that are going to be beneficial to ourselves and to the outcomes that we are looking towards. So it's almost a perception shift. And as I said, it's quite a difficult one because we've spent the last 30, 40 years encouraging people to trust computers, right? Mm-hmm. Encouraging people. Like, if you ever someone like a grandparent or a parent, when they first saw a computer, they were like, oh no, that thing looks dangerous. I don't trust it at all. But we kind of forced people through that and we forced people to lose their skepticism for the limitations of the tools that surround us. 
And that's and that's a that's a human thing that needs to change rather than a machine thing. We shouldn't discount using them because of course this is becoming like a new baseline. That's like you can distrust the results that Excel gives you all you like, but if you're running your business still on paperback books, you're going to find your competitors. You have to start seeing this as a new sort of floor to build upon in terms of efficiency, in terms of processing power. But when it comes to questions of judgment, judging whether something is real or not real, whether something is good or bad, that still remains very much a human function. But trying to outsource to tools is going to get us into a lot of trouble. And I think that that's going to be the lesson of the next generation of policymakers and of leaders to kind of sort through what are the things that this makes us better as, as a society and what are the things that makes us worse. And where do we need guardrails in place? What sort of rules do we need to help us use our own judgment when it comes to using these tools? Mm. Bronwyn, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That is Bronwyn Williams, a futurist and a partner at Flux Trends, joining us for our future of conversation, looking at the future of uh, what does it look like to coexist with AI and deep fake technologies?